Welcome to this bonus episode of Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Deergatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And if you want to be the first to hear our bonus midweek podcast, become a Sound Opinions member on Patreon. We do appreciate the support. Um, Greg, Althea Legaspi is our treasured news correspondent, a uh, contributor uh, on staff at Rolling Stone, covering the world of music news. We've got a report from Althea on two, not one, but two stories uh, this week. Uh, The loss of the great Cynthia Plastercaster, a legend in the world of musical groupies and uh, a reform groupie is how she described Mm -hmm. herself (laughs) in later years and uh, we have to talk about this new merger of jam productions chicago-based regional midwest really uh, promoter that has joined forces with a larger corporate entity to compete better with live nation yeah i think the biggest news in music the music industry uh, in quite some time in terms of how the industry is going to operate here going forward because Live Nation's so dominant. Well, two important stories. Uh, we'll dive into them with Althea in just a minute. And we're back with Althea Legaspi. Althea, thank you for joining us once again. It's a, it's a sad story we have to start out with. Yeah, it is really sad. Actually, it was tough to write. Cynthia Plastercaster, real name Cynthia Albertine, died of cerebral vascular disease on April 21st. Mm. She was 74. I don't know if either of you have also met her on your goings to shows. (laughs) You couldn't miss Cynthia. Anybody who's ever been to a show in the Chicago area has known Cynthia's smile and spark. It was interesting because I, you know, I called several of her close friends. Uh, She was beloved, not just in Chicago, obviously. She was beloved the world over. Yeah, and it was difficult for a lot of people to talk about it. She had been sick for quite some time and... A lot of people don't realize because of the artistry she does, which is casting penises and breasts, people wouldn't think that she'd be kind of a shy private person given the nature of the work she was doing. But apparently she, because she was sick, even some of her closer friends did not uh, realize her obviously very, very close friends knew. So it was pretty sad, but she started the whole thing from college. She was a, a student at UIC and an art teacher had proposed, you should start, we need to have a project where people start uh, doing casts. And of course, because you mentioned that she's, I think she's called herself a recovering groupie. Was that what her? Recovering groupie, reform groupie, yeah. The reason she chose the medium was because of her absolute love for music. And actually, everybody I talked to, that was kind of their hugest emphasis about her, is that she was a serious artist, despite, you know, what people might think because of the sexuality aspect of it. It was really her, her life's work to dedicate that merging between her love of music and the artwork she was doing, right? So her yeah. first cast, as everybody famously knows, is Jimi Hendrix. Uh, it was in February of uh, 1968. But what's interesting is uh, her power of attorney for healthcare, his name is Chris Kellner. He had said, you know, a lot of people thought her her love was Jimi Hendrix, but her actual, she was really in love with Noel Redding. <laughs> the bassist, yes, yeah, the English bassist. She, she casted, obviously, many famous people. However, a couple of the people I spoke with were the Mekons, uh, John Langford, who was a visual artist himself, and Sally Timms. Both of them were casted. And the interesting thing that they both just emphasized, again, is her serious artistry. It was it was something that she took, just took meticulous time with. She would hand number everything. She called them her babies. Her integrity was really huge. Her One of her former 
former managers, he managed her for at least a decade, Mitch Marlowe had told me, even when she couldn't pay rent, you couldn't commission her if she didn't like you. She had to be a fan. She she had to be a fan and uh, she wouldn't even sell. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, Sally had had very much emphasized the, the diaries that she did and just even the writing and drawings that she rendered. Kellner had also mentioned that a lot of people don't realize her drawings were very impressive as well. It's just something that she hasn't done a lot of showcasing of during her her lifetime. I was always fascinated by her process as someone who uh, sculpts miniatures. She used dental alginates, what you would use uh, if, if you needed dentures or, or a replacement uh, tooth set. You know, this was not a super sensual process. This took patience and time to get the mold. Yeah, and it, she developed her process over the years and then even also added breasts much later. That wasn't her, obviously, her original intent. There were not many uh, females to cast in 1968 when she starts out. This is true. This is true. And I think it's interesting as well that uh, when I met her, and I'm sure the same situations with you, someone introduced me to her as just Cynthia. And I had a long, like an hour long talk with her just about music and had no idea who I was speaking with. Later, someone was like, oh, were you talking about to Cynthia about plaster casts? And I'm like, huh? Of course I knew who she was, but didn't know. But that was her. Exactly. She's just, to me, was everyday woman. She grew up in working class on the South Side and just became this like famous artist. Catholic schoolgirl who, uh, she told me once, you know, saw the Beatles at Kaminsky, as Chicagoans <laughs> will always say, yeah. guaranteed rate what? And, you know, changed her life. You know, the thing that always struck me about Cynthia is she was at a lot of shows that we all went to. And she was there as a fan. She knew these bands. I mean, and you talk about somebody going back to the 60s, you know, just making the effort to continually go to shows, support the bands. This was her life. And that's, I think, underappreciated. This wasn't a gimmick for her. This was... This stuff was important to her. And merging art and sexuality and rock and roll, I mean, it was um, it was kind of a mission. I agree. And that's I think that's something that everybody is trying to emphasize. I think there should be a retrospective. Sally Timms flat out said she should be in the Smithsonian. It's I think it, I think she will be revisited. <laughs> I think her artwork will be revisited. Uh, she was working on a memoir, actually, uh, to her friend's knowledge, the, at least the people I spoke to. I don't know that she was had finished it, but uh, I think that would be an interesting thing to revisit. Well, you know, I think really, Althea, and I'd like your perspective on this as a, as a female uh, journalist and critic. There was a moment in the post-feminist heyday of the 90s when it was being posited that groupies were empowering themselves with these acts of sexual liberation. Of course, you know, even like in Almost Famous, the movie, Groupie is 15 years old, right? I had some serious conversations with Cynthia during the R. Kelly reporting. I think her memoir would have been fascinated because she didn't shy away from the negative experiences she had on the road with some rock stars. Those far in her past, in the 70s, um, the kind of bands that she loved and supported the whole rest of her life tended to be indie people who had a certain ethos that was close to hers. Was what she was doing female empowerment? You know, it's interesting. I think, again, it's like looking at it from a retrospective standpoint. And I think even if she were around, she'd probably say the same thing. You know, initially, it, it seemed like an idea that grew into something else. And as she met people, as you mentioned, I had had never personally had a conversation with her about some of the bad sides of it. And I'm sure there was. Um, I can say as a female journalist, I've definitely had experiences 
you know, out there interviewing. Uh, but as you also mentioned, I do think that later in life, her indie, that she was finding people, young, actually independent artists were who she seemed to champion. And maybe there was some safety in that when it comes to that, bringing up the idea of whether it's feminist or not. I think it is, to me, I think she, where the empowerment comes is that she just embraced her liberation of this, what she felt about it. I think that the idea that we need to be pristine or prude about, you know, people's sexuality and what they pursue and the way people were judged as fans back then, um, in retrospect, is bad. I mean, Almost Famous definitely hits a lot of these marks, right, with uh, with how the women were viewed. And, you know, you know, now people aren't called groupies, right? I don't even know they have armies and names for their for their fanship. And there's a whole little no- monsters. Yeah. And there's a whole other aspect of that side. That's where that there's other kinds of harassment that actually aren't just sexual that are happening because of social media and fan and fandom. But that's a story for another day. I do think that she opened the idea that there could be a bond that's beyond just that surface of like listening and responding, right? She actually became a part of that. And I think that's what most music fans, I mean, it's to me, it's amazing how that art, how that affects so many other art, artistic endeavors and could inspire a whole lifetime of work. And that being a fan, you can also be an artist. Start that fanzine, start that YouTube channel. You can participate in many yes. different ways. Create art yourself. Yeah, and the last thing I want to tell you, there are obviously because she has so many, she's so beloved, she, there are going to be a couple uh, memorials. Actually, there's one that may be in London, but one for any fans in the Chicago area that I was just told of this morning is that uh, July 7th at the Metro, they're going to have a public memorial for her. The blasters get harder And my love is perfection A token of my love for the next show We're going to miss uh, Cynthia's smile and spark at shows, Greg, once we get back to them. Absolutely. And speaking of shows. Chicago concert promoter Jam Productions is partnering with a Los Angeles-based investment group. That's the, that's the short uh, version of this uh, complicated story in that Jam has been resolutely independent for 50 years. It's celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Uh, started as kind of a rogue outfit in the late 60s by mm-hmm. two, two entrepreneurs, two young, long-haired entrepreneurs looking for a way to make a living. Uh, Jerry Michelson and Arnie Granite, and and became one of the biggest players in the music industry, kind of like a you know a, a Midwest version of the Bill Graham empire on the coast. Oh, you know? absolutely that, yeah. And you know when Live Nation was ascendant in the '90s, there were only two independent concert promoters uh, brave enough to go to Capitol Hill and testify about this growing threat of the corporate monster of Ticketmaster Live Nation. That was Jerry Michelson and uh, and Seth Hurwitz of, of 930 uh, Club in D.C. I honestly thought we'd never see this day. Yeah. Where Jam would come part of partner with anybody. So, uh, so what? But what exactly is happening, Althea? Because the story didn't quite come out the way Jam wanted it to. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually did have a conversation with Jerry Michelson about this. But you know, to to get back to what Save Live is for those who who may not know, uh, it you know it had been it had been formed by two partners, Mark Geiger and John Fogelman, who are both of William Morris, which is the big agency. 
They've got actors. They've got musicians. Uh, the whole nine. Morris Endeavor. Yeah, they wound up owning Lollapalooza and then selling a, a stake of it uh, to these Texas promoters, and then eventually to Live Nation. Yeah, and Mark Geiger was one of the co-founders of Lollapalooza, as you're mentioning mm-hmm. here. So in the fall of 2020, they it, no one really knows what the circumstances were, but Mark Geiger did leave William Morris, and you know I did talk to some outside sources that are in the industry who uh, choose to be anonymous because we don't know what publicly what the deal is, even after speaking to Michelson. But uh, they, in the fall of 2020, launched Save Live. And the idea was to, you know, as we know, that was the middle of like the pandemic was raging. C- clubs were bleeding money. They were all shuttered. Shuttered, yeah. And so the the idea was that they would take 51% minority ownership of struggling venues and try to help save them. They would take the 49 and the venue would retain 51? No, the opposite. (laughs) Oh, they would take controlling interest, 51%. Exactly. We'll bail you out. And then when this fog, this horrible disease clears, we'll... uh, be the controlling owner of your venue. That fell flat, though, like a pancake, didn't it? <laughs> it did. It's And then, you know, at the time when that was, there were a lot of people, uh, you know, in the press talking about how that just kind of felt like a bad deal and, you know, a little icky. And then what ended up happening is that the shuttered venue operators grant came around. And that, I think, kind of ended their initial idea because then venues got some rescue money to sort of float a little bit longer. They changed at some point their model, and now they're offering a variety of different services, right? From booking to data and tech, and it's a lot of logistics they seem to be uh, offering. So when I spoke to Michelson, uh, he made it clear there was some confusion as to whether he was in that 51% deal that we were just talking about before, if if he had sold. And he was uh, very quick to tell me that they did not sell to, to Save Live that they only have an equity stake in Jam, although he did not give me specifics on that, and um, that he is indeed operating and still running Jam. He really emphasized that it's a partnership uh, and that growth capital obviously is part of it, right? So that's that's part of the equation and that he wanted to tap into the resources that uh, Save Life has. So, so correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, because I did have several conversations. Nobody anymore wants to go on the record about the concert industry. Such is the shadow of Live Nation, right? If you're anywhere in the music business, you don't disparage Live Nation slash Ticketmaster. Live Nation's asset is we control so many venues from the, s- the size of a couple of hundred capacity up to the Enormo domes. You tour with us or you don't tour at all, right? We control uh, the ticket selling. We control uh, ticket pricing, ticket sales. We control merch. You know, there was that period where they were looking to become the distributor of music. <laughs> okay, so Jam now is part of a network, uh, Save Live. They're the biggest uh, name so far to jump into bed with Save Live. But it's like an alternative network. Bands who are looking to tour the country can go to Save Live and have 20, 30 gigs booked under one umbrella rather than all the work of making 25, 30 separate deals. It is going to be competition to a Live Nation or an AEG because the difference with independent venues prior to this, right, if you're taking like a... a, a First Avenue in Minneapolis and um, I don't know. Metro in Chicago. And a Metro in Chicago. They're, they're, you know, those are one-off shows, right? But if you're a network of different venues, 
then there's sort of a powerful way of them being able to buy blocks of tours, which is what something like Live Nation and AEG can do, right? So, so in that way, that that makes them competitive in a market that you know had to kind of compete, especially here in Chicago. For example, there are Live Nation venues and there are jam venues. And at that point, you know, they're both trying to go for like that tour. But if if Live Nation has bought the whole tour through the whole country, then they're out of luck in a place like Chicago. Now, if it goes the opposite where Save Live now has the power from it saying, hey, if you want to play Metro, you also have to play this other venue on our network, which is what I think Live Nation AEG do. Now they're kind of even is probably the wrong thing because we're talking different levels of size, right? But in terms, they do have more leverage now. If this indeed is the the plan, you know, somebody told me on background uh, <laughs> that uh, Live Nation told Geiger, "Save Live, better stay out of the major markets." And now here they are in Chicago with Jim. That's interesting. You know, will this new company have the juice to really compete with Live Nation Ticketmaster? And it's, it's also interesting Geiger's history as uh, resurrecting uh, Lala. Palooza starting it in the first place because Lollapalooza is Live Nation. And Live Nation says to the acts, you play, you know, Lollapalooza, you don't play elsewhere in Chicago for, for a good nine months of the year. I mean, you know, to me, one of the things I did ask Michaelson about, because my, my curiosity was really like, how does this affect the artists? How does this affect the fans? And also, you know, what does this mean to independent venues? Now, when I talk to the outside sources, it really kind of depends on the venue. I think most, it could be great. They could just buy, one of the things uh, in in some of the stories I saw is that, you know, they can buy piecemeal into the network. And even if you go to Save Live, they have their partners. You know, when I was talking to Michaelson, he really talked about the logistics. And I understand that this idea that, you know, when that's already there and the data that they can tap, right, knowing how much an offer is from another venue, you know, and, and you gives you a, how to know where to pay for an artist. And for artists, the general consensus of the few people I talked to, again, not knowing the full deal, is that, that it's probably good for the artist. It could be a win because now if there's an offer of this, everybody kind of knows that data and they kind of have to give them the same amount of money and they could, you know, get this big tour deal. But what's interesting is who ends up paying that benefit, right? You know, there's fans. Ex- always exactly. The fans, yes. Ticket prices get be affected. I mean, this is a huge get for Save Live. Uh, there, there are other locations. Uh, there are other partners. You know, Palm Springs, California, fairly large. Oklahoma City. I mean, we're not talking about giant players in the in the industry. So suddenly you've got a series of major venues, Riviera Theater, Vic Theater in Chicago, that are part of this network. This may attract other clubs and theaters in the country to say, okay, let's let's partner up with Save Live as well. So this could be a turning point for them. I agree. And I think when I was asking about advantages to Michelson, if, whether it came from an artist or a fan, he's like, nothing's going to change. He just kept going back to the logistics. And I said, well, what about secondary markets? which Jam for a long time was a part of. And so the the venues you were just talking about, the areas you were just talking about, Greg, are second, right? Their secondary markets. Pontiac is in Detroit. Although Chicago is definitely a huge market, right? So that, like you said, this is a big get. But one of the things Michaelson said when I asked him, I said, is this, you know, what does this mean at least for fans maybe in a city that the bands don't come through? And that could actually be a positive because they used to be, Historically, Jam has been in a lot of smaller markets, uh, Ohio, Indiana, 
Yeah, bits and pieces throughout the Midwest. Nebraska, yeah. And and now, with this kind of a power, they might be able to expand back to where they were historically at one point, which means that fans and actually artists will be able to hit some of these smaller markets. To your point, Greg, Jam joining this is definitely like, A, they may be, people may want to get on board because of this. It's a huge turning point, but also it might be like, a, oh, no, I have to get on board now. You know, it, it can't be stated often enough. You know, Live Nation Ticketmaster has been the most negative force in the live music industry I've seen in my lifetime. So uh, if Save Live, uh, even with Jam, is uh, is David versus Goliath, but it's at least good to have somebody else on the battlefield. Exactly. I think, you know, aside from the fact that the ticket sales might go up, which is the one thing that I think we all need to watch, I think having more healthy competition could also, if we're lucky, drive down the prices for that reason, or at least even them out some. Or, you know, I never mind paying more for anything if I get better quality, as as Astroworld and the tragedy that uh, lingers there. State of Texas just put a report out. It's, it's 20 pages uh, about what poorly trained security contributing to the death of 10 fans, and the words Live Nation were mentioned once in 20 pages, except that is the corporate owner of that festival. So Althea, thank you as always for staying on top of all things music news for us. And it's always just fun to talk to you, even when they're sad stories. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this bonus episode of Sound Opinions. If you've got thoughts on Cynthia Plastercaster on Save Live and Jam or anything else, start a conversation in our Facebook group or leave a voice message on soundopinions.org. Sound Opinions is produced by associate producer Sol Delgadillo and Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne. Our intern is Mary Bernthal and our social media consultant is Katie Cott. Thanks for listening.